Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. It's April. It's a lovely month, not the cruelest month at all. Rather, it's a time of spring weather, cherry blossoms, and one of the nerdiest literary holidays this side of Bloomsday. April is home to William Shakespeare's birthday. If you're listening to this show on the day it comes out, it's April 26th, which is not William Shakespeare's birthday. That is the day he was christened. Truthfully, we don't know William Shakespeare's exact birthday, but it was probably April 23rd. During that time period, children were generally christened three days after being born. But the back end of April is occasion to bust out the Shakespeare, think about your favorite soliloquies, and reflect on how magical the Tempest is, how funny Much Ado About Nothing is, and how amazingly tragic and violent King Lear is. Those three are probably my favorite Shakespeare plays, but for some sad folks, for some cranks and killjoys, the end of April offers no reason whatsoever to celebrate literature, poetry, and drama. Because there are people out there, again, sad, terrible people, they don't believe Shakespeare was Shakespeare. They don't think he was real. Or, if they think he was real, they think that the guy from Stratford-upon-Avon was a front for the actual author of all of those plays. People who don't think William Shakespeare was really William Shakespeare are commonly known as anti-Stratfordians, in reference to Shakespeare's hometown. There are a lot of them. A few famous anti-Stratfordians you might have heard of are Mark Twain, Helen Keller, Henry James, Malcolm X, John Paul Stevens, Sigmund Freud, Charlie Chaplin, Derek Jacobi, and Roland Emmerich, the guy who made Independence Day. Also, he made a movie called Anonymous, all about how Shakespeare wasn't real. And I'm going to do this podcast kind of backwards and upside down. I'm going to get into the origins of anti-Stratfordianism and the ideas motivating it at the end of the show. So if you're curious about where this comes from and what it means, we'll get to that later. But first, I want to talk about the main candidates that the anti-Stratfordians put forward as alternatives to the guy who actually wrote the plays. Now, there are a lot of candidates. Anti-Stratfordians oftentimes disagree with each other. But one thing that they agree on is that there's no way that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. So if we went down the list of all of the candidates who have been offered as Shakespeare alternatives, this would be a long and frankly tedious show. So instead, I'm just going to talk about the big three. The three major candidates that people have thought are Shakespeare, but aren't Shakespeare. Those are Christopher Marlowe, Francis Bacon, and Edward de Vere, also known as the 17th Earl of Oxford. Of the three, Christopher Marlowe simultaneously makes the most and the least sense. Marlowe, after all, was a playwright. He was a well-regarded one. He worked around the same time Shakespeare did. 
He was certainly capable of writing works of great drama and literary majesty, but a few questions. If he wrote Shakespeare's works, why not put his name on them? Why not get the credit and adulation that he deserved? Was this an issue of him not wanting to dilute the Christopher Marlowe brand? Did he only put his real name, Marlowe, on good stuff like Dr. Faustus and reserve the Shakespeare brand for dreck like the Comedy of Errors? I mean, that's one idea, but it doesn't really make sense. You'd think that an ambitious playwright like Marlowe would have taken some credit. But that's not the big thing that disqualifies Christopher Marlowe from being Shakespeare. The big issue is that Marlowe died in a bar fight in 1593 when he was only 29, and Shakespeare's career went on for some time after that. The Tempest, Shakespeare's probable last play, was written either in 1610 or 1611, so almost 20 years later. If Christopher Marlowe wrote Shakespeare, how did he keep producing plays long after being dead? Well, there are some wild ideas about Marlowe actually being a spy, faking his own death, and then ghostwriting Shakespeare after he was supposedly stabbed in a bar. We have no good evidence for this whatsoever, but I would love to see that movie. I mean, if somebody made a movie about Kit Marlowe faking his death and then becoming an Elizabethan super spy and then getting mixed up in all kinds of shadowy intrigue, betrayals, matters of state secrets and all that, while at the same time producing great works of literature, sure, I'd watch that movie, but we have no evidence it actually happened. So, moving on. There's also Francis Bacon. Bacon was the first major candidate put forward as an alternative to Shakespeare. And there are several variations on the Francis Bacon conspiracy. Sometimes it's just Bacon alone writing Shakespeare. In some versions of the Bacon conspiracy theory, he's got collaborators. But the core of it is that Franco Bacon, which I'm sure is what his friends called him, was a philosopher, a statesman, and an all-around polymath. And he realized that there was value in what was, at the time, a dirty and popular form of art. Drama. Much of the rest of the aristocracy just wasn't all that into it. Bacon, smart guy that he was, realized that ancient guys like Sophocles were onto something with the whole writing and performing plays thing. They were able to sneak very big ideas and truths into them, so he thought he'd do the same thing. However, because there was such a stigma on being a dramatist, he'd have to get some other dude to take the credit for the plays that he wrote. Enter Shakespeare. So, Francis Bacon is sitting there having very big philosophy thoughts, turning them into Hamlet and Macbeth and stuff, handing them off to Shakespeare, and then he is secretly educating the populace with his masterful insights on the human condition, while a balding guy from Stratford takes all the credit. There is no good evidence for this theory. It's also fallen out of favor with many anti-Stratfordians. But if there's one thing that conspiracy theorists are good at, it's moving the goalpost. So, Francis Bacon doesn't work for you? Guess what? We've got another guy. 
the 17th Earl of Oxford. Edward de Vere is probably the most popular anti-Stratfordian nowadays. The most popular anti-Stratfordian candidate nowadays. In fact, de Vere partisans are known as Oxfordians because there are so many of them. The Oxfordian argument is all about drawing lines between de Vere's real actual life and incidents in Shakespeare's plays. These lines are tenuous at best. For instance, de Vere was known to have traveled to Italy, which he enjoyed a great deal and thought was beautiful and compelling and had extremely interesting geography and history and all of it. And hey, several of Shakespeare's plays are set in Italy. That's a connection. We also have de Vere's Bible, which has a whole bunch of quotes that he thought were kind of good, and he highlighted and wrote in it. And you could, maybe, draw some lines between the biblical passages he was into and language in Shakespeare's plays. Also, being an earl, de Vere would have had knowledge of history and politics and all the stuff that makes up the plot of Shakespeare's plays. He would have known about the various Henrys and Richards that, you know, populated Shakespeare's stage. He would have had the education necessary to talk about those guys. He was also a poet and a big patron of the arts. He was a fan of theater and likely saw several of Shakespeare's plays. And he would have good reason for possibly being secretive about a career as a dramatist. In 1583, he knocked up one of Queen Elizabeth's maids of honor. Queen Liz didn't like this very much. She kicked him out of court and into exile, but it was fancy exile. Apparently, he still drew an income from the queen, even though he didn't get income from his lands anymore. His life was not exactly hard, but he's this nobleman in exile, and it all sounds like a soap opera. He's this like art-loving guy who is away from court for sex reasons. Then he becomes a secret playwright and the most vaunted artist in the Western world, even though he is so far away from the court that he was once a part of. Here's the thing, though. We have no direct evidence for any of that. Connecting William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon to William Shakespeare, the author, is actually fairly easy. We've got documents for that. Connecting De Vere to authorship requires that you play connect the dots with his biography, his Bible, and kind of squint and make inferences about hidden things. Also, he died in 1604. We've got the same problem we have with Christopher Marlowe. Plenty of Shakespeare debuted post-1604. But if there's one thing that conspiracy theorists are good at, it's special pleading and saying that certain evidence just doesn't count. Plenty of Oxfordians like to claim that pro-Stratford scholars have messed with the dates of certain Shakespeare plays to discredit Oxfordianism and make it look like the guy from Stratford-upon-Avon was actually William Shakespeare. This would require a degree of coordination among academics, of forgery, of falsification, that I think you just don't ever see from English professors, though. And there are several other candidates that float to the surface every so often. But if we got into all of the maybe Shakespeare but not Shakespeare candidates that anti-Stratfordians put forth, this would be a long show. Something common to all of the anti-Stratfordian arguments, though, is that you have to push aside 
pretty good documentary evidence we have for actual Shakespeare in favor of inference and speculation to support another candidate. But I still haven't gotten into where the theory comes from or the fundamental ideas behind it. Why even doubt that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare? It's not like we do that with other writers. No one is out there claiming that John Milton didn't write Paradise Lost or that Virginia Woolf didn't write To the Lighthouse. What gives? Why are we even talking about this? In 1781, the story goes, a writer named James Wilmot set out to write a biography of William Shakespeare, who had died not quite 200 years earlier. However, when Wilmot looked for traces of Shakespeare around Stratford-upon-Avon, he couldn't find any. He couldn't find any books from local libraries, for instance, that said, property of William Shakespeare in them. Nor did he find many receipts, contracts, or other records of the bard. This seemed strange to Wilmot. Where were the books? Where were the records? Where was the evidence of one of the greatest artists the world had ever seen? Not finding it, Wilmot basically declared that the highly educated nobleman Francis Bacon wrote the plays, not the Stratford guy. But here's the thing. This Wilmot narrative could be completely dubious. One of the ironies about this is that the whole anti-Stratfordian conspiracy alleging literary forgery and lies might in fact incorporate literary forgery and lies. According to Shakespeare scholar James Shapiro, that Wilmot story is a 20th century fabrication. We don't quite know who made it, but Wilmot's supposed account references historical details about Shakespeare that people in the 1780s didn't know yet. Also, the paper it's written on is wrong. Apparently, whoever did the forgery, probably sometime in the 1920s, used drawing paper from the 1780s, not the kind of writing paper that a scholar like Wilmot would have used for that kind of project. So this probably doesn't date from the 1780s. It probably dates from the middle 1800s. Until then, no one really wondered about who wrote Shakespeare. The founder of anti-Stratfordianism probably isn't James Wilmot, but probably, more properly, is an American playwright named Delia Bacon. No relation to Francis Bacon. She contended that Shakespeare was actually a collaboration between Francis Bacon, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Edmund Spencer. Bacon's theories were based on the idea that a common person wouldn't have known about the ins and outs of court life and would have lacked the education to write plays so beautifully and philosophically dense. Now, to be fair to Delia Bacon, around the same time, literary scholars were coming around to the idea that works like the Iliad and the Odyssey were probably the work of multiple people rather than just one guy named Homer. The idea being that those works were transmitted orally, and each performer who performed the Odyssey or the Iliad or other epics from the time period would make additions, subtractions, or alterations as they saw fit, and then pass those mutations down to the next person. By the time those works actually got written down, they had passed through many, many creators, so we could not definitively say that Homer was just one person. Homer was rather a project. Likewise, several books of the Bible probably had multiple authors. This is pretty apparent when you look at the languages that the Bible is written in. It's not consistent. 
The book of Daniel, for instance, has multiple types of Hebrew in it. There's some Greek and Aramaic also in there. It suggests that that work was probably altered, added to, translated, changed, and generally mutated by a bunch of people, not just one person who decided to sit down and make some Bible happen. So when that critical scholarship was going on about classical works and biblical works, Shakespeare's star was also on the rise. For a long time, he was just considered one more pretty good writer from the Elizabethan era. However, late 1700s and 1800s, he becomes one of the most important authors of the Western canon. So, as he was becoming a very big deal, it's understandable that someone like Delia Bacon would try to apply the same kind of historical criticism to Shakespeare that others were applying to Homer and biblical authors. She was doing kind of the same project with Shakespeare's great works that other people were doing with more established great works. However, unlike Homer, Shakespeare's texts were not transmitted orally. Actors read the lines that were given to them. And there's not the linguistic evidence, like there is with biblical text, to suggest that it was written by different people at different time periods, writing in different languages. So we can't do to Shakespeare what scholars have also done with Homer and the Bible. And that Wilmot narrative I mentioned earlier? It's misleading. It's not exactly true that we lack documents relating to Shakespeare's life. We don't have a lot in the way of letters, receipts for purchases, contracts, or records of business deals, but we do have some, most notably his will. And this isn't that unusual. We don't have an abundance of documentation for Christopher Marlowe either. And that shouldn't surprise us. Shakespeare wasn't considered the greatest artist in Western history during his lifetime. He was successful, sure, but no one was out there trying to preserve all of his scraps and receipts as if they were to become sacred relics later on. We do, however, have what was really important, the collected plays and poems. And I'm not going to go into details about the publication history of Shakespeare's works. That would be an episode in and of itself. But there's nothing to suggest that the folios we have are anything other than the collected works of a pretty popular dramatist named William Shakespeare. Nowadays, the scholarly consensus is that anti-Stratfordianism is a fringe theory. However, I have to confess one small amount of sympathy with the anti-Stratfordians. Mysteries and puzzles are cool, and it's understandable to think that great art would have a mystery or puzzle behind it. It's understandable to expect that something you find beautiful and transcendent would also have a compelling process behind it, like a secret cabal of collaboration between learned men who wish to impart wisdom upon the masses. Shakespeare writing plays because it was time to write another play and put some butts in seats? That's just not compelling. However, there's another very important way in which the anti-Stratfordians are just dead wrong about everything. It's a conspiracy theory rooted in classism. The idea that an ordinary person, the son of a glover, could create transcendent art is just hard for some people to accept. This is a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Ralph Waldo Emerson wasn't an anti-Stratfordian, but did find it kind of weird 
that a guy like Shakespeare was responsible for the plays he loved so much. Emerson says, quote, He was a jovial actor and manager. I cannot marry this fact to his verse. Other admirable men have led lives in some sort of keeping with their thought, but this man in wide contrast. Had he been less, had he reached only the common measure of great authors of Bacon, Milton, Tasso, Cervantes, we might leave the fact in the twilight of human fate. But that this man of men, he who gave to the science of mind a new and larger subject than had ever existed, and planted the standard of humanity some furlongs forward into chaos, that he should not be wise for himself, it must even go into the world's history, that the best poet led an obscure and profane life, using his genius for the public amusement. Unquote. Wow. Now, a few things about that. First off, way to kind of slam Bacon, Milton, Tasso, and Cervantes, Emerson. Wow. And also, I'll confess, this gives Shakespeare a bit too much credit. Saying that he gave the science of mind a new and larger subject than had ever existed and planned a standard of humanity some furlongs forward into chaos? Wow. Yes, he's a very good writer. We all love him. But let's also acknowledge that not all of his stuff was transcendently great. Timon of Athens is a not-too-good play about bankruptcy, for example. Henry IV Part Two is a cash-in sequel. In the first one, everyone liked Falstaff, so the second one does what sequels do and has way too much Falstaff. And Titus Andronicus is basically a grindhouse thriller film full of dismemberment and cannibalism. It's awesome. I love it. And it's the kind of amazing garbage that you should be a little embarrassed to watch. Let's also acknowledge that Shakespeare was a popular entertainer, and we should be okay with that. We can step down from the transcendence every so often, Emerson. What's wrong with public amusement, dude? Don't you like fun? Anyway, there's that. That perception that there's a gap between Shakespeare the man and Shakespeare the work. But honestly, I think you'll find that gap with every art and artist that you look at. Some time ago, I had occasion to interview one of my favorite artists. I'm not going to say who they are. They're still alive. I was in their house. I spoke with them. I pet their dog. And their place was ordinary. Nice, certainly, but not the kind of place that you think great, wonderful, amazing stuff was generally birthed out of. But that's exactly what it was. It was an ordinary person's home that made extraordinary work. One of the other central tenets of anti-Stratfordianism is that Shakespeare probably didn't have enough education to write the plays he did. A great writer, the thinking goes, would need all of the training and knowledge that a life as a noble could give him in order to make great art. Hence, Francis Bacon or Edward de Vere as being more quote-unquote plausible candidates for being Shakespeare. However, this argument falls apart when you look at other great writers who have been perfectly capable at making great art, even though they didn't get a nobleman's education. For example, Charles Dickens grew up poor. He was one of eight kids. His dad was thrown to debtor's prison, and young Charles received only sporadic education, where he was also made to do child labor. 
He eventually found work as a freelance reporter and later on became one of the most successful novelists of the English language. William Faulkner never got a high school diploma. He went to college, dropped out. Later on, he got a Nobel Prize for literature. Maya Angelou did graduate high school, but didn't attend college or university. Also, she suffered all the systematic discrimination throughout her life that a black woman in the United States has to deal with. That made her life much more difficult, and yet she still wrote, I know why the caged bird sings. And this isn't to say that education isn't helpful for writers, or that people shouldn't go to school. Education is helpful. School's great. But it's not a necessary condition for creating amazing art. We have seen multiple times, that you don't need an MFA or a nobleman's schooling to write good literature. And that's a big hole in the anti-Stratfordian's central premise. But if he wasn't a noble, well, how did Shakespeare know so much about nobility, history, and that kind of thing? It's not like he had no education. Shakespeare probably received what we would consider to be the equivalent of a high school education, though we can't say for sure. We can only infer based on what we know about people of his social class at the time. But Shakespeare isn't popular and his plays aren't good because they're historically accurate or they get the details right. There's all sorts of things that they get wrong. His plays are replete with historical inaccuracies, my favorite being clocks in ancient Rome. And it's not like they're filled with all kinds of detailed aristocratic protocol because That would be boring. Shakespeare's plays aren't successful because they're about kings or grand figures of history. They're successful because they're about people. Kings and historical figures are, first and foremost, in the Bard's work, human beings. Reading Shakespeare or watching Shakespeare, you often see these towering historical figures like the various Henrys, I don't want to say reduced, but generally humanized. And there's a great speech in Richard II that sums up how kings and other grand figures are first and foremost human beings, despite all of their pomp and pretension. And you didn't think that we'd get through this episode without reading some Shakespeare, did you? Well, here you go. Quote, For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. How some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping, killed, all murdered. For within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king, keeps death his court, and there the antic sits, scoffing his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a breath, a little scene, to monarchize, to be feared and kill with looks, infusing him with self and vain conceit, as if this flesh which walls about our life were brass impregnable and humored thus, comes at the last and with a little pin bores through his castle wall and farewell king. Unquote. At the end of the day, a king is just one more human being. And even though so many of his creations sported titles and crowns, Shakespeare's characters were humans more so than they were monarchs, as Richard II so effectively laments. Shakespeare didn't need to see the inner workings of a court to write that. 
He only had to be an astute observer of his fellow human beings to write about ambition, tragedy, and mortality. Those are universal. You don't need to be Francis Bacon or the Earl of Oxford in order to see those truths. They're available to all of us, even the son of a glovemaker from Stratford-upon-Avon. As always, this is a 100% listener-supported show. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a supporter. Thank you, all of you who do that every month. I appreciate it immensely. Uh, Go on Apple Podcasts and give us reviews. Give us several stars and glowing words uh, that helps other people discover the show, and I love reading your feedback. Uh, We're on social media. The show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, and I am on Twitter at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 